Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. And I'm Tim Cronin. Tim, what are we talking about today? So when I was first starting out, Eric, and I'm sure this is true for you and for most young lawyers, the concept of trial was very scary to me. I had no idea how to prepare, what to expect. And once I got my feet wet after a few years of trying cases, I decided to go back and write an article that I think was in the Missouri Bar Journal, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. And it's called Basics of Preparing for a Civil Trial, The Checklist. And it's really geared for attorneys who haven't had the opportunity to try many cases yet or young attorneys to just give them a basic layout of here's the things you need to make sure you do to be prepared for the trial. It doesn't get into how to do an effective cross-examination or anything like that. So today we're going to plagiarize you yes. based upon the article you wrote. <laughs> yes. All right. So, you know, Eric, any experienced trial lawyer, as you know, will tell you that preparation is paramount. We should be playing the song Be Prepared by Scar from The Lion King in the background while we're doing this. Every book, blog, article about trial advocacy begins and ends with the mantra, be prepared. And for attorneys with minimal or no trial experience, it can be terrifying. If you haven't watched one, you're worried that, you know, it's very rigid and you have to know the right thing to say all the time. So no matter how many times repeated, be prepared doesn't tell much about the logistics of preparing for trial, nor does it do anything to soothe the nerves of a young lawyer wanting some direction. You know, firsthand trial experience, which is increasingly hard to obtain, is the best and perhaps only way to learn the nuts and bolts of trial preparation. You know, this topic has come up a lot about how to get experience because a lot of the firms only try the biggest cases. Yeah. And the young attorneys sit and watch maybe most of their lives waiting for a chance. And we've had a number of guests comment on what to do. And a lot of them have suggested volunteering, go to legal services, go to a charity that needs attorneys or whatever, just get yourself into the courtroom. But there are somewhat solutions to that problem of not getting experience. You don't have to wait for your firm to have a case and invite you to try it. And I mean, the best way, if you really want to get experience right out of law school, trying a bunch of cases, the best way, in my opinion, is to start out at the state's attorney's or public defender's office. You're going to try a lot of cases right. all the time. If you don't do that on the civil side, I think, you know, volunteering at other places is one of the best ways to go. Because just by the nature of it, if you're taking cases on the plaintiff's side, you want to take cases that are good enough that they're trying to pay you an amount of money to settle it that your client shouldn't turn it down. And then on the defense side, you know, they're trying to appreciate and minimize risk for their client if there's a settlement that makes sense. So as both sides have gotten more sophisticated, I think there's less and less, you know, opportunity. And I think the volunteering for places like legal services is a good way to get it. We had an episode with Dan Glazer and Karen Warren of Legal Services. And I was on that one. They made it clear that if you want to help out, give them the call, they'll put you yeah, to work yeah. for those here in the St. Louis area. Yeah. So, you know, absent getting in the courtroom and just trying them, which everybody should try to do for those young lawyers out there, and please do volunteer at Legal Services. They need your help. What we're going to do here today is just a basic checklist, basic tasks that should make your trial much smoother, no matter your trial strategy. There is potentially a problem when you say prepare and be extremely prepared. 
I think there's some people that that causes you to freeze up and get terrified because you can't completely prepare because you can't completely know what's about to happen. Yeah. How do you balance that in your own practice where you know you got to know a lot of stuff and you got to know it well, yeah. but you also know you got to be flexible for the stuff that happens in the courtroom? I think you have to know your file so well that you're not worried about forgetting something so that you can just react at trial when something unexpected happened and something unexpected is going to happen. It's like, was it Mike Tyson or some boxer that said, everybody's got a plan until you get in the ring and you get punched in the nose. <laughs> so, you, you know, you can prepare as much and know your case as well as you can and have it teed up. If you know all the documents backwards and forwards and the testimony backwards and forwards, you'll be able to be more relaxed to the unexpected things that are going to happen in trial. So... Preparation begins the moment your client comes in the door and continues through every step of discovery. Here, we're just going to begin where discovery ends. Documents have been exchanged, you know, discovery answered, depots completed, and what's left is trial. And we're going to kind of go through the things you need to make sure you have scheduled or get done to make sure you're ready for that trial. And when you have a trial coming up, if it's not already in your scheduling order, I've been in situations where I didn't realize till late, Eric. I don't have a pretrial conference scheduled and you need one and you needed it far enough in advance that you know what evidence is coming in or not coming in because you can't argue motions on the morning trial starts. Let's say you don't get that scheduled. No one takes the initiative. So you show up on the first day of trial and you haven't worked through any of these issues. It's my experience that you might be there with the judge for four hours. Oh, yeah. So it, it eats up half of your first day. Yeah. And then you might have some evidence is coming in that you didn't know was going to come in. And now you're trying to figure out how am I going to voir dire about that? So that's why it's so important early on. When you first get a scheduling order in your case, I try to get the pretrial scheduled. And I go back and check four to six weeks before trial to make sure we have one. And if not, I try to get it at least the middle of the week before you start. I'd prefer to have it a week before that. But make sure you get a pretrial conference scheduled to occur about a week or more in advance of your trial date. So you can argue and hopefully resolve any important evidentiary issues ahead of time. You don't want to spend all morning the first day of trial dealing with pretrial matters, arguing evidentiary issues, while the jury panel impatiently waits, only to discover that half your evidence has been excluded in the opening statement you spent two days writing is now worthless. I always make it a point to ask the judge their preference about how voir dire will be conducted. Some judges ask panel members a number of questions before turning it over to attorneys. Others prefer to leave all the questioning to the lawyers. Sometimes in federal court, I've had judges who really almost let the lawyers ask no questions. So you want to know in advance what you need to be ready for. And just to underscore what you've already said, you're sitting there at a pretrial conference and some of your best evidence maybe got tamped down or excluded. And now you got to rewrite this careful thing that you put together has to be reassembled on the fly. And it just makes it less likely that it's going to have the highest impact yeah. you can have. on. I know it. there's a lot of lawyers, good experienced lawyers who think you win or lose your case in opening. I tend to think Vaudier is more important, but you definitely want to nail your opening. One of our first episodes here on the podcast was how to lose your case on opening statements. <laughs> yeah. It was John Simon's 10 tips on why it's important to get that opening statement right. So I think you're dead on with that. It's like, get that pre-trial conference out of the way so you can then get to work about what you're going to do on that first day. Yeah. I like to get a chart at the pre-trial of how the jurors will be seated and numbered. Once you receive the names of the potential jurors, then I quickly fill them in on the seating chart, which allows me to easily use their names, keep better notes during voir dire. So knowing the procedure ahead of time will make your voir dire much smoother. We've talked about this, I think, with you on the podcast about how important it is to get that process smooth about voir dire. 
John's of the opinion, and so am I, although we don't always have this luxury of having someone else there to take voluminous notes oh, as yeah. the thing is going on. You're there to listen and to ask the questions. If I'm doing voir dire, I have my chart and I might have like a red marker and black marker where I'm putting like a red X or a black check mark. If I figure out somebody said something like, I need to follow up with this person. To you don't use happy faces. Try to and, get them off. And, and frowny faces. <laughs> no. But, you know, then whoever's at the table will be taking all the notes to then argue the motions for cause. Or if John does Wadir, I'm sitting at the table taking copious notes of everything they're saying. Because, yeah, you can't do that while you're the one who's supposed to be listening and engaging and asking questions. Right. So once you have your pretrial conference scheduled, then you can work on a timeline, reach out to the other lawyers on an agreed timeline to exchange motions and limine and responses. You want to draft and file them prior to the pretrial with enough time for the other side order to respond. And you want theirs with enough time that you can respond to theirs and look up their cases. And so I work backwards from the pretrial, agree on a date to exchange those, be sure to leave enough time to respond, consider including all your motions in one pleading. That's what I do. I don't think the court likes when you file 15 separate pleadings with different motions and then there's 15 different responses and you can't keep track. It just creates kind of a mess. So I tend to do an omnibus motions in limine. If there's one that's going to be really, really extensive, I may file a separate one. I'm not sure if we've talked about motions in limine on another episode, but they're obviously going to depend on the type of case you have. You know, from the plaintiff's side, if your client was involved in prior lawsuits or claims or gets disability or receives disability payments or have insurance because of the collateral source rule. But think carefully about your case. You know the stuff that the other side might have been focused on or asking your client about that you don't think should come in. I go back and read all the depots again because I don't want to miss something that might be important. And then everybody's favorite part of trial, dealing with depot designations, it's just the worst. In Missouri, you can read any deposition at trial, right? And any depot can be used for any purpose. And elsewhere, you know, maybe you have to take an evidence depot. But more often than not, if you have a trial, you got at least some depots you got to designate, right, Eric? Sure. So you need to designate those portions you intend to present. And as with motions, try to exchange designations in advance of the pretrial so that each side has an opportunity to raise objections and make counter designations. There's nothing worse, and it seems to happen every time, no matter how much I try to prevent it, than in the middle of trial, the jury's sitting back there because you didn't have your designations and objections teed up and the court hasn't ruled on them and you're scrambling for an hour or two hours and the judge is pissed, you know the jury's pissed, I'm mad because it's throwing off my schedule, and I often feel like it's intentional from the other side to not have it done so that it creates these problems, but I tend to be pretty cynical, but I do everything I can to try to get this all squared away at the pretrial. Or if you have Wadir on Monday and that's all you're going to get done with, try to get the court to stay late on Monday and get it all hammered out so that you can get them worked out. In my class that I teach is pretrial litigation. Yeah. The issue comes up and we do simulated depositions. And the students often wonder, well, why are we objecting? There's no judge here to rule on these things. And well, this is that moment when you're sitting down with the opponent arguing about what comes in, what doesn't come in at trial. Those objections all of a sudden start looking more interesting. Yeah. Well, and if it's a former foundation objection, you better have set it in the depot. Otherwise, you can't raise it for the first time. You can raise relevancy or various other objections, but if your objection was to the form of the question or to the foundation of the question, if you didn't make it in the depot, you've waived it. 
Yeah. And I've seen people make in Missouri an objection form of the question without specifying what the problem is with the form of the question. Yeah. I've seen that not honored as an objection. Correct. And sometimes I will, if I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with the form of the question and the lawyer's just worried and doesn't want to miss something and they say form, I just ignore it. Mm -hmm. But if it's a really important question, I'll call them on it. I'll go, what's wrong with the form of my question? They go, I've made my objection. No, you didn't. I'm now asking you what you think I need to fix about my question. And if you can give me nothing, good luck telling the judge that that's a preserved objection for whatever basis you're going to say later. So we file a pleading with depot designations where we make a chart with all the pages and lines and then another pleading for the other side's designations and designating the page and line and our objections. And then we bring highlighted copies of those depots for the court. The court reporter will appreciate not trying to take down everything that's being said in a depot, but also for the court's benefit. You know, I'll highlight all my designations in yellow, and if there's just one defendant, all of theirs in green or something, and then put red brackets out on the side with objections with little notes about them, just making it easier for the court to see here, what are we really talking about? And when you finalize them, I just mark that depot transcript as an exhibit and give it to the court reporter. So it's part of the record. It's great. So... I'm a strong believer that facts win cases, and you can't present the facts unless you know the evidence. So this really has to start way before, you know, you shouldn't be waiting until after your pretrial for this to review and prepare the file. A month or two before your trial setting, set a few days aside to review the entire file, sit down with your paralegal or staff or whoever, read every deposition multiple times, prepare a summary or outline of each depot to assist in quickly locating any useful testimony, Closely review every document produced before drafting your motions in limine. You don't want to see a document for the first time at trial and then start figuring out your exhibit list. How do you review your depositions? Is it sitting down with the paper in front of you and a pen or do you do an electronic version of some sort? I prefer to have paper. That's just my preference. And then I can take it back and forth from my house and work. I want to get rid of all the stuff that I'm sure doesn't matter yeah. because that makes me gag wanting to read a deposition and seeing a bunch of back and forth by lawyers and things that aren't really going anywhere. Yeah. There's a tool I use called Transcript Pad. It's oh, a, okay. an iPad tool. Yeah, I've heard tool. you talk about that. You just use your finger to highlight the things that you think are interesting or might be interesting. Yeah. And that way I can get rid of everything that I'm sure doesn't matter. And then I review just the stuff that's interesting or maybe interesting when it comes time to do what you're suggesting. This is funny because I'm much younger than you and you're using sophisticated technology and I'm using pieces of paper and sticky notes. <laughs> but that's what I do. I put sticky notes. Is that was that a compliment? <laughs> yes. That I'm older. Okay. <laughs> oh, no, you said much older. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, as part of reviewing the file, I go back and read all the pleadings and discovery responses from all parties. You may be able to identify inconsistencies between your opponent's written responses and depot testimony. Those inconsistencies can be gold at trial. And with that in mind, I make sure to double check my own discovery responses and supplement if necessary. I've had it happen where I didn't do that. And somebody pulls out a discovery response and goes, oh, well, you didn't say that then and you didn't get a supplement. You do not want that to happen. So I always make sure a month before trial, I go back and read my discovery responses, organize the file so you can quickly and easily locate everything in it. We still bring a box with all the exhibits, Eric. I don't know if you still do that. We still bring a box with one copy, hard copy of all the exhibits. 
but that's not even what we use anymore. You know, we used mm -hmm. to use Elmo's, but now we have our IT person that has the whole file and they can pull up the exhibits. But I like to have a hard copy there just in case, you know, I do want to put it on an Elmo or I want to show it to a witness or whatever. There's nothing more infuriating than needing a document to contradict something your opponent or a witness just said, knowing the document exists in your file and not being able to find it in time. Yeah. So I go through my exhibit list with my paralegal who prepares it and keep updating it like 30 times. If I need something, I want to know where it is. To be you know, able to pull I'm it a big up. believer in paperless. At my home, you will find two or three boxes with paper and everything else is electronic. But when you go to a hearing where you need the thing fast, you have a deposition in front of you and you have that yellow post-it note hanging off the side with those three things that you know you might need to get to in an instant. Yeah. When I have a witness on the stand at trial, even though I'm planning to pull up the exhibits electronically, just in case something happens, I have a folder with copies of that witness's deposition, tabs and highlights of anything I think I'm going to have to cross them if I think they're going to say something inconsistent, any exhibits marked during the deposition, any documents I intend to use with that witness on the stand, and it is at the podium with me. Just in case something happens, I've got everything I intend to use with that witness. So I create that folder for each witness before the trial even starts. And then we have folders for the, the case pleadings, each party's written discovery responses, party's document production and Bates stamped order, any other categories of documents, reports, photographs, police reports, things like that. And I have a list of what is in each file box so we know where to look. And then obviously it's organized electronically for the person to pull it up in the same order as the exhibit list. So I'm assuming this is a pared down list of the documents you found interesting. Yeah. There's some cases where there's so much stuff that was produced that doesn't bear on the issues. Oh, yeah. And I don't bring those because I find that a I drown in that stuff if I don't get rid of it or set it aside. You might have 100,000 pages of medical records and you know 99,000 of them don't matter. I used to bring all those just in case, and I don't do that anymore. I don't need 12 boxes sitting there that I'm not going to use. So I really try to make an effort of what actually could feasibly be used at trial and only put that stuff on the exhibit list. If something else comes up, we can always send an email to somebody at the office and they can send you if you need it. So yeah, I'm very meticulous about how I organize that exhibit list. I don't put it in the order I intend to use them. I know a lot of lawyers, whatever thing they use first with a witness, that's exhibit one. I don't do that. I organize it by category of what I think is most important to the case, even if I might not use it with the first witness. So a lot of times the defendant's documents that were produced, I have it listed as exhibit one with the key documents from that group being listed as exhibits like 1-1 or 1-2. And I do the same with other categories of documents like photos, emergency response reports, medical records, expert records, et cetera, and then create a chart on my exhibit list that allows me to keep track of what's been introduced, offered, and admitted into evidence. When you try in cases, I and mean, some of it's the preference of the judge, do you ask the court to admit some exhibit you just used as you go? I usually wait till the end of my case. I wait to the end. That's what I and do. And then ask it as a batch. That's what I do. And say, Your Honor, the plaintiff rests with the exception of moving for admission of exhibits outside the presence of the jury. Yeah, what, and then what I have miss, that chart. I'm worried about missing one or two. You know, yeah. that's like your habit is that, okay, I got it in. I, but what if you're in the heat of the battle? You miss. So this way at the end, testimony's not going on anymore. You right. have a moment where you can say, What has come in? And you can ask whether you need to consider other exhibits at that point. You know, testimony is kind of done. Yeah. Okay, now it's the time to recap with the exhibits. And I think it's just a safer way to do it. It is. So I have my exhibit list and I keep check marks in these columns for introduced, offered, 
And then I'll write down the actual like page number I may use. And then also on my witness outline, while I'm examining or cross-examining the witness or watching the other side do so, I keep track of the numbers that are used. And then we cross-check all of it at the end because I don't want to miss something. And the, the elephant in the room here is we're not just trying a case at this point. We're preparing for appeal. Too. Correct. And so that's why we have to be so meticulous about what's coming in and how it's coming in. Yeah. Another thing that I usually do is prepare research folders for any really major issues I think are going to arise at trial with the most important section of any case or statute already tabbed and highlighted. If I know we're going to be repeatedly arguing something about some particular evidentiary issue, I want to have the cases there so I can give them to the court instead of just going, judge, this is the law. I know. And they go, where's the case? Well, I'm in the middle of trial. I don't have time to go get on Westlaw. So I try to have those ready. This is the point where I'm going to tell you about my newest favorite toy for yeah. computers. It's a program called Foxtrot Pro. It's about $125 and it's for Mac. There might be something similar on a PC. And what it is, it's a program to sniff out your files in your computer. And so those of us who bring a computer, and I think it's most all of us now to court, you're looking for something, right? People are waiting and you're looking for something. That's a terrible feeling. Yeah. And so what this program allows you to do is to not only look for words that occur, like in your Mac, there's this thing called Spotlight, which will allow you to find a document that has a particular word. This allows you to do all the Westlaw type stuff. You can say, I want every document where this word is within 10 words of that word. And it's a much more fine-grained query, and it lets you track down those things that you know it exists. It's somewhere in your file, and you can get it instantly. So for those of you who use Mac, I just can't recommend this highly enough. It's really opened up my ability to get things done at my home Yeah, or sounds office. useful. Okay. So, you know, the whole point of this review and prepare your file is, as Eric already said, you want to narrow the documents into a manageable set of key documents and above all, you want to streamline your case before you present it to the jury. If you can't simplify your case prior to trial, there's no way you'll be able to adequately convey it to the jury. So, you know, remember, shoot with a rifle, not a shotgun. <laughs> One of the next things that I do is I start looking at jury instructions. I want to make sure, and I usually do, I know exactly what it is I have to prove before I start putting on evidence and I can't stand trying to put together a set of jury instructions the night before you're about to close because you're going to have your instruction conference. I want them done and have plenty of time to make sure they're right. I have three complete sets with citations to the approved jury instructions in the jurisdiction. I work with opposing counsel to exchange them and iron out any issues well in advance of closing argument. Neither the judge or jury will be pleased to wait around while you finalize instructions. Like, How many times have you been trying to work out instructions for two, three hours while the jury's waiting back there thinking you were about to close the case and they can deliberate and then get to go home? Or the jury went home, the sun has gone down, yeah. you're in the judge's chambers and it's eight o'clock, you're eating into the time you were going to use to prepare for the yeah. closing argument. So one way or the other, you got to get this done. And I've had why instruction not? conferences go to 11 p.m. And I'm going, Judge, I have to give closing argument for my client tomorrow. Like, I got to get out of here. So, you know, we look at jury instructions before we file the case. Yeah. Or unless you already know the kind of yeah. case. Like, you could do a lot of particular you know, kinds med mal, of- med auto accidents. We you know, know what that. going to be. But if it's something that might be a little wonky or I haven't done before, I'm trying to figure out if I should take the case based on what I'm right. have to prove. So, I, I filed a civil rights case with a co-counsel recently. And he has a practice. And I thought, okay, what the heck? He wants to embed the jury instructions into the pleading specifically. And so the elements are all there in each count. And then he'll put a footnote on there and say, here is the A circuit instruction for this. And it's, it's just like the structure of the entire case should be that jury instruction. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
So I think that might be a good breaking point, Eric, because having done all of this allows you to start actually preparing for the evidence you're going to put on at trial. And so we will cover that in our next segment. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm Eric Beeth. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At The Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.